following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. Welcome back to our study in the book of Obadiah. When I was here last week, one of the things that I said was that I encourage you to call me out if I misspoke. Someone's smiling, so someone may have heard me misspeak and didn't call me out. <laughs> but in any case, I went back and I listened. And two misstatements shot right up, stood right up. <laughs> and I used the name Ruth I saw in two places where I should have said Naomi. So, I'm going to try again. <laughs> but I did notice, though, now one of the good things is that I refer to the actual scripture from which the points that I was trying to make came, so that if you follow the scripture, you maybe got it without being confused by me using the wrong name, because what the scripture says is the most important thing. Right? And so we want to be sure that what we're saying is actually scripture. But to me, it was an interesting thought for me to go through the idea of looking at these names. And so I was presenting the idea, see, with Obadiah and his name, and then Obed, the name of Naomi's grandson, Ruth's son, as we see it in the book of Ruth. And so what I was expressing was the idea that if we see a name, which means servant or one who serves, that we may wonder, well, serves whom? So the context can help us with that. And so obviously there are a lot of different proper uses of serving. Pastor prayed for one just now about serving, serving us uh, in a capacity to help us to be saved. But uh, in the name Obed, then, just to say what we said before, it comes from a, a root word in the Hebrew, which mean, has that meaning that I just expressed, servant or one who serves. And that the first part of the name of Obadiah has that same thing. And so we then concluded that we can say of Obadiah that the name has the meaning, one who serves. And that's how we got to that. You, you see in here, Lord God, the word Adonai, and then God, what we call the Tetragrammaton, which we often see written as Y-H-W-H, the four letters. And that Vowels taken from Adonai being substituted then, and some people would put in their translation the word Yahweh or the word Jehovah, or you may just see Lord. And as I said, those all are the same. But what, the thing that I was doing with Ruth in chapter 4, verses I think 13 to 17, 14 to 17, I think is what I put in here in my notes. But it was Naomi 
that I meant to say was the one who seemed to be in a state of depression because of the bad turns that her life had taken. And so we learn early on in the book of Ruth why she and her husband were down in, in a foreign land, down in Moab. And while there, her sons acquired wives, their sons acquired wives. But then the husband died. And the wives' sons died. So there came a day when Naomi said that she was going to return to her people. She had learned that there was a turnaround in her homeland, and she thought she would fare better to go back home. And as we know from the book of Ruth, of these two, I mean the book, yeah, the book of Ruth, these two daughters-in-law, one of them went back as Naomi suggested they both should do, to be among their own people. But Ruth said, no, I'm not going to do that. She said, where you go, I'm going. The God you serve is the God I'm going to serve. Where you die is where I'm going to die. She would not be separated from Ruth, I mean from Naomi. Ruth would not be separated from Naomi, so they went. And so then what I was suggesting here is, is that when we see what happened after Ruth and Boaz were married and a son was born to them, and the son, as we said, he was named Obed. But I thought it was very interesting the exchange that we see here of what the women said. Now I think these were wise women who were doing this, this talking as it were. But uh, in verse 14 in chapter 4 of the book of Ruth, this is what they say, these women, to Naomi. Now as I said, it, we, we gather that Naomi seems to be a bit depressed. She needed the encouragement, and she was lacking something, which someone in her position would need. And I'm going to give it to you from this verse. They say, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you with this day without a close relative or kinsman redeemer. So, she's, so they're saying to her, it appeared that you didn't have this, but the Lord has answered the need. That seems to be what they're saying. And so in verse 15, they says, and may he be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. What does that sound like? To me, that sounds like someone who would serve her in her old age. And that seems to be, to me, what the women are suggesting here, that this son, born to Naomi's, grand, uh, Naomi's grandson, born to her daughter-in-law, to Ruth, that this son 
would serve her. That's the idea that I'm taking from this. And it says in verse 16, that Omi took the child, she laid the child in her bosom and became a nurse to him. And then in verse 17, we see the naming of the child. We've seen naming of various ones in scripture. Even someone trying to name someone one name and, and Joseph said, no, I mean, it's not going to be the name. <laughs> so, but this is, I think, an unusual thing here. But this is what it says. The neighbor women named the child, saying, there is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. And so it's, to me, seems to be what they are suggesting and saying is that God has answered Naomi's need through this son born to Ruth. And his name properly is one who serves. And we say, well, serves whom? Serves Ruth in that context of what is here. So to me, that was kind of interesting. So I, I wanted to bring it that way. Because now when we get to Ob Obadiah, and as we said, now, so we have the first part of the name, one who serves, and we're still with that same natural question, well, serves whom? And then I said, well, we don't have to rely exclusively on the context to get an answer to that, for that name, because the last part of the name gives it to us. And it is that name, and we went through it. I'm not going to go through the detail I did before, but the name from which or shortened form of the Jehovah, of the covenant name of God, the what we call the Tetragrammaton name with just those four, uh, as I said in the very beginning, letters without the vowel pointings. That name. And so when we see then Obadiah, and it says a little note that the meaning is one who serves we're saying one who serves the Lord. That's who Obadiah is. But that's a name, right? Now, we might come across an Obadiah in our normal course of life. And we may know that the name means one who serves the Lord. But the Obadiah with whom we are speaking or looking at may not be one who serves the Lord, right? And so for this Obadiah that we he have here in this book, we have more than just the name because, see, one of the things that we said is that there is not much information given to us about this Obadiah who wrote this book. Not a lot of information is given. It doesn't tell specifically where he lived, where he came from. We surmise from what's in the book that he probably came from Judah. He probably lived in Judah. But it's not explicit there. So not a lot is given. Now, when I say a lot, I mean in terms of a lot of details. Because we can see and glean right from the text of the book itself that this Obadiah was one who served the Lord, not just a name, but a man who served, and he served the Lord. 
the first part of the book, right here in the first verse, the vision of Obadiah. Now, the vision of Obadiah. So Obadiah is seeing something. It's an unusual way in which God is communicating to this man. And then we are getting the benefit of what it was that God gave him so that other people could know what the mind of God is on this point. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And then the book, it gives out the information that God wanted to be conveyed. And so this Obadiah is not just one who serves the Lord in name, but he is one who serves the Lord in actuality. He is a true servant of the Lord. Now, servant of one who serves. And as I said before, that there are, there are just so many places in Scripture which talk about this idea of serving and servant and all that. And I alluded to a bit of that last time. I want to take a little bit more time just to, to, to visit that idea again, that view. In Joshua chapter 24, we see Joshua make a statement. We remember that Moses had led the people, and Joshua was his successor. But then Joshua stood before the people. He made a declaration, and he said, now, I'm reading, I'm not turning to my Bible, I have it here on my page for the sake of the time. But this is what he said. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, to serve the Lord, Obadiah, one who serves the Lord, Joshua saying, if this seems to be an evil thing to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And then he gives them some choices whether the gods of your fathers, the gods of your fathers, that your fathers served on the other side of the river. He's saying there's one of your choices. You can make that choice. Or how about the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell? You can choose them, their gods, and serve them. Or, you can choose to serve the Lord. So what's important about this? Joshua is, is declaring that the people have agency. Agency. What do, I mean, what do I mean by agency? It means that the people have the ability. They have the wherewithal. They, have, they, they can make a choice. They can. But then also then, not just agency, but they also have volition. Volition. And what's a volition? They have a will. So they have a will. So they can, and then they can also will, so they can choose. 
And so Joshua says, I'm putting before you these choices. Make yours. That's very interesting. And so he's challenging them to take a stand and do it now. But he doesn't stop there. He says, for whatever is worth to you, I'm going to tell you where I stand. That's what he said. I'm going to tell you the choice I have made. And so what does he say? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua had decided that he was going to serve the Lord. He didn't know how they were going to choose. He didn't know who among them would choose to serve the Lord. Who among them might choose the gods of the fathers from other side, other side of the river? Or who might choose the gods of the Amorites who's, in whose land they were dwelling? And he says, whatever your choices are, this is mine. And so he didn't worry about whether his choice was politically correct. That didn't matter to him. He said, I know who the living God is, and I have decided to follow him. Now you decide who you're going to follow. That's what Joshua said. And so that's a challenge for all of us as we go along through our lives in our self-evaluations of what we do, the things that occupy us, the things that concern us, to keep that foremost to serve the Lord. Be like Obadiah, serve the Lord. Be like Joshua, take a stand and serve the Lord. We know that for many people in many places, to make the choice to serve the Lord is to make a choice that would inevitably lead to an early death. And in many cases, a very ignominious death, horrifying. And yet there are many who have made the very choice to say, I'm going to serve the Lord. I know it's going to bring problems, but I'm not looking at the problems. I'm looking at the Lord whom I'm choosing to serve. And that's what Joshua stood, where he stood. So in Matthew 6.25, he just simply says, no one can serve two masters. He said one of few things might happen. They might they hate one and love the other, be loyal to one or despise the other. But there's an inability to serve, to serve God and mammon. Now that's one we work with in our minds all the time. Because we know that we have certain responsibilities in the world. We have jobs, we have occupations, we have things that are our responsibility which if somebody looked at us doing those things, they might say, well, I don't see the difference in a Christian person doing that and somebody other person doing it. So you have engineers of high quality, very well skilled, and they put in their time and the effort and energy the necessary to be excellent at it. 
Now, somebody might say, well, it looks like you're serving, serving mammon, right? Well, that may not be the case at all because their excellent service may be evidenced in their context that they actually are serving the Lord, right? But for another person, another engineer with a similar level of skill, what they're doing and their context of their life might evidence that they're serving mammon. Is that interesting? So the context of a life and what a person does and their value. And so we can be, we can get off the track in how we evaluate if we're not careful about it. Just because a person is pursuing something and they're excellent at it, it just seeing that part in isolation of everything else is not, is not all you need to know. But anyway, that's what it says there. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and admonition to serve the Lord. John chapter 12, verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And then I want to go back I'm going to end this part with Psalm 100. That's probably the first, well, probably the second. <laughs> I would say probably the first Psalm I memorized, but I think it's the second. Because I think Psalm 23 was the first one I memorized. But uh, this is an awesome psalm. It says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. All your lands serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we, ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name For the fear, I mean, for the Lord is good. We did an extended thing on that once. The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth endures forever. That's interesting in the midst of our current uh, environment, social cultural environment, that this says his truth. People are talking about speaking your truth and my truth and all that nonsense. But this says his truth endures forever. So how do we know what that is? 
we come here every week, week after week, and we have his Bible with us. We open it. We read from it. We say God has not left us without a word. God has not left us on our own to figure things out by ourselves. God has not left us without instruction. He has not left us to do whatever it is that we can come up with, but that it did give us a revelation. Words from God through the prophets. And he said, if you want to be right with me, then the way to do it is to put your nose in here and then your heart and your feet and keep at it. Don't give it up, but keep at it. So that's the challenge we bring to ourselves to do that, to serve the Lord. And so Obadiah, one who serves the Lord, one who serves the Lord. So this message that he brought it had two primary, what I call two main parts to it. In the first long section, the focus is what we would call a negative focus because it talks about Edom and how Edom is going to be destroyed. But then in the latter portion, there's a completely different tone. In verse 15, it says, For the day of the Lord is upon all the nations. Now, the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. And then if we skip to the last verse, listen to what the last verse says. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And so one of the things that we said earlier on is, is that though the length of the book is short, the span of time that it covers is expansive. Because we're talking about historical events in the time of Edom. And we end up down here. You know there are some future events that are coming. And there's a tribulation that's coming. And there's a millennial reign of the king that's coming. All those things, future. This little book and these 21 verses span all of that. That's an awesome thing. So somebody uh, looking at that can see that the book, although it's easy to miss when you flip through, is a very important and significant book. It's worthy of the time that we spend looking at what the content is here. The question comes up as to when the book was written. And from what I've gathered, almost every source I look at, they, they point to two major dates that seem seemingly a large group of people pick one or the other. One of them is, a, is an early date of the writing, somewhere, I don't know, 845 or somewhere in there, B.C. 
I think that's a, in, during the reign of Jehoram. And so events there will be, and connect this, what we he, read here and what we're reading in Jeremiah and what we're reading in some other places and put that together and come up with that idea. Some of them like to attach the date of the writer to the Babylonian captivity. And so they'll put a, a, a late date, we call it a late, no, early, way back in 800 and something now, coming forward to 586, and that would be uh, Babylonian captivity, somewhere around 586. So for our purposes, it's not necessary to put a second sound saying and say, okay, this is where I stand on that, <laughs> right? But we're just going to lean to the early date. But for our purposes, it's not critical to take a stand as to where that is. The primary audience is also a question that comes up in original, primary original audience. And we take it to be people who lived in Judah. That's kind of generic, but the content of what we see is from which is where we glean that idea that those are the original audience. And we see that Edom, or the Edomites, they were perennial enemy, uh, enemies of Israel. But now they are told on this by this prophet that the terror reaped on them by Edom is going to come to an end. And that Israel is going to be restored. There is a time of restoration coming. So that would be an encouraging message. And so I say the way I've divided it is that these, these two primary things and then the other subdivisions within. Now I want to point out some of the things that I find here. And we're going to go back and look more specifically, of course, at some of these things here. But I put a title on my notes, which I call Notable Expressions. Notable Expressions, because as I continually look at Obadiah, and I said, man, there really is a lot here that's being said. Okay, so what do I have on my list of notable expressions? Well, one of them is just simply vision of Obadiah, because not everybody had a vision, not every prophet was communicated to through that means. So that's one of them. That's in verse 1. Now, we'll find, says the Lord, uh, the Lord has spoken. Worth those kinds of words. Identify four of those, I think, in verses 1, 4, 8, and 18. So the Lord has spoken. As I said earlier, Obadiah had a message, but he didn't have Obadiah's message. The Lord has spoken. Here's another one. In verse what I call 3a, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Now he's talking about the Edomites. But pride of heart is something we can all relate to and identify and think, man, that's a bad thing to be deceived by the pride of heart. Can I be deceived by the pride of heart? Well, the way to ask that is to say, am I a human being? If I am, if the answer to that is yes, then the answer to the question is yes. So we have to be concerned about that. Then it says, you say in your heart. 
Now, you know, I think about these as a parallel, and I'm going to pull out some of the things that I see as parallel expressions. I saw a lot of literature talking about how Hebrew literature, and particularly poetry, uses a lot of parallelisms. And I see things that, to me, come across as parallelism. I try to check to see if those actually are. I, I read one article talking about um, a poetic analysis of the Book of Obadiah. Now, you know a lot of that was over my head, right? But I found a lot in there that I could relate to, and I think, and just in the way to try to check what my thoughts were, it's a thing that might be parallel to see what that author seemed to think might be parallels. And so the idea is that what we're trying to do is to get an idea, really, of what it, what it was that was being communicated to the people. We know we're at a disadvantage. We are at a disadvantage from a different a number of different routes because, for me, I don't speak Hebrew. I don't know Hebrew. But that doesn't mean that I can't benefit from the studies that people do, right? But I need to try to be careful about that, though, so that I'm not imputing things into the text that don't belong there. So we work at it, and we keep on working at it. Now, here's another one of my expressions, and my time is going, so I better go through the list here and give you these, and then we'll come back. But uh, I'm going to run through quickly here some of the other points that I had under my notable expressions list. One is just simply these two words together, your brother. Now, that's interesting because that's to the Edomites, and they're saying the people that you abuse, that's your brother. And then there is the expression of the expressions you should not have nor should you have. Now, I think that's in verses 12 to 14. But that's the list of the violations of Israel that the Edomites did. And that's quite a list. But those kinds of words, I see three of those in verse 12, three of them in verse 13, uh, two of them in verse 14. Then there's the expression, that day, or the day, in a generic sense. Not necessarily generic, but in the context of Edom, not the day of the Lord day, but day. But that's interesting, too, because they're talking about Edom's destruction as a, the day. And so, you know, the day, or the day of the Lord. And so we talked about day of the Lord. It could be a day of the Lord for destruction and judgment that was local or more or less contemporary, or it could be the great day of the Lord, future. But anyway, those kinds of expressions, there's just lots of them in here. Verse 8, 1, verse 11, 2, verse 12, 4, verse 13, 3, verse 14, 1, verse 15, 1. And then there, of course, is the day of the Lord is also found. Here's another one. As you have done, it shall be done to you. That's interesting. Then my holy mountain, or Mount Zion, in verses 16, 17, and verse 21. The nations slash all nations, in verses 1b, 15, and verse 16. The house of Jacob. Verses 17 and 18. The house of Joseph, verse 18. 
the house of Esau, slash mountains of Esau. In verse 18 twice, in verse 19 and verse 21. My people, slash children of Israel, verses 13 and 20. And then the term, the kingdom. Notable expressions. So there's a lot here, really. It's only 21 verses. But there really is a lot here. And we intend to talk about some of these things in more detail. We're going to pray. Our Father, we thank you because what we're doing here and why we're here and how we're here is all you're doing. We don't have any way of even think, thinking that we could have even arisen from the bed apart from you, dear Lord, who granted us that blessing and that privilege. We ask you now to, to work in our hearts by your spirit, through your word, to your glory. We ask it with, in, through the name of the Lord Jesus with thanksgiving. Amen.